Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and I'm here with my good friend, Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hello, Andy. Uh, today's a great day. <laughs> it is, because today we're going to associate a couple of words with you that people don't normally associate with you. Lawyer and brief. the holy roman empire was neither holy nor roman nor an empire discuss okay yes akil is actually not technically a lawyer he never took the bar and he's short but he's not brief (laughs) (laughs) and well but but this is important because today um akil his brother vic and a third party we will identify shortly um filed a brief in the Supreme Court case of Moore versus Harper. And just to be clear, this is not something that you do every day, filing Supreme Court briefs. Isn't that right? Uh, That is right. This is frankly the first real brief where I've taken a leading role along with my two teammates, one of whom is Vic Amar, who also happens to be my brother, Dean Vic Amar, a law school graduate, former clerk to Harry Blackman, and currently the the dean of the University of Illinois College of Law, and our third teammate, the teammate to be named later in this podcast. Uh, this is what's known in the business, I guess, as a tease. We don't want to tell you just quite yet, but, but oh, the third one is a biggie. Okay. And the case is a biggie. Um, and obviously, that's part of why you, know, you filed the brief. And one of the things we're going to talk about today is, is why this may be the first of, of several briefs to be filed over time. Um, so, but let's get to it. Why, what is Moore versus Harper and why are we filing, why are you filing a brief in this case? Moore versus Harper is what may very well be the most important Supreme Court case, not just of the term, but of a period. And that would especially be true of an era of a decade if it went the wrong way. If it went the wrong way, it would be another Bush versus Gore, indeed another Dred Scott. It's a case that comes out of North Carolina, out of the state court system in North Carolina, and it involves the thing, Andy, that we've had previous episodes on, where Vic, in fact, was our guest for, for some of those episodes, involving a thing called ISL theory, Independent State Legislature Theory. In a nutshell, this case is about congressional elections, but ISL under Article 1 of the Constitution, but ISL theory also has been thought about and and debated in connection with presidential elections under Article 2. And in a nutshell, the question is how broad or how narrow the power of a state legislature is to come up with rules for congressional elections and or presidential elections. More particularly still, does a state legislature have authority under the United States Constitution, in effect, to ignore restrictions on its powers created by state constitutions? And what is a state legislature, actually, for purposes of the federal constitution? Does the state legislature involve a governor who has a veto pen or not? Can a state choose to create an initiative and referendum process and say, that's our state legislature for presidential elections or for congressional elections? Can a state constitution say the legislature can do thus and so, but cannot, can do A, B, and C, but cannot do E, F, and G? Can a state constitution say 
We want our legislature to be controlled by our state Supreme Court in the following respects. Can, are those things permissible or does the state legislature instead flow independently of all the typical constraints that would exist created by its parent, its master state constitution? Now that sounds very abstract. Yes, very. It does. Yes. Okay. I know that. In the end, you know, how much do we really care if we can have an independent commission or something like that? And here's why it matters. Let's think about this, especially for presidential elections. Can a state legislature, if it wants, pick presidential electors itself, even if the state constitution, as definitively interpreted by the state Supreme Court, says, no, the people of the state to pick presidential electors, not the state legislature. Now, to be even more pointed, as our uh, longtime audience members will have heard before, let's take seven key states in the last presidential election that voted for Biden presidentially, but that have Republican state legislatures. Let's bracket the governor for just a minute. The following seven states voted for Biden, one person, one vote within the state presidentially, but have Republican state legislatures in part because of gerrymandering and and districting, rural bias, and a thing called urban clustering. Um, Democrats tend to crowd together in cities and are underrepresented in geographically defined, districted state legislatures. Here are the seven states that, to repeat, voted for Biden, but have Republican legislatures. Georgia, Alabama, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nevada, New Hampshire. Now, if the state legislatures in those states in 2024 say, we're going to pick presidential electors ourselves, no Democrat can win. And and by the way, I'm not counting Virginia and North Carolina. They, They could also possibly be in this category. On the other side, there are no states that voted for Trump that have Democratic state legislatures. So there's no offset here at all. And if if just even three or four of those went rogue, so to speak, went independent, said we're going to pick electors ourselves, Republicans would have a lock on well over 300 electoral votes, and the election is over before it has started. Now I hope I've gotten your attention. Yeah, and clearly there's a political incentive for these legislatures to want to do that, whether or not you know you, you find it to be you know moral or or you know right or wrong. Um, or even constitutional for that matter. Um, but there, there's clearly an, an incentive for them to do it. And here's what they may say. They're going to say elections are frauds. There are a lot of illegal people voting. So we're going to actually do it ourselves. And that's what they're going to say. And they're going to say, oh, and the Constitution in Article 1 gives us the power. We're the legislature. We're the independent state legislature. Oh, and in Article 2, that's for congressional elections, they're going to say, oh, the Constitution gives us the power because we're the independent state legislatures and we don't, we cannot be constrained by even the voters in our state in a state constitution that tries to impose limits on us or a state Supreme Court that interprets that state constitution in ways that, that constrain us. A, a state court that might say, Actually, in the Pennsylvania Constitution, it says the people will pick presidential electors and not the state legislature. Independent state legislature theory says that state constitutions can't do that. State Supreme Courts cannot play that role. That's what Moore versus Harper is all about. So it sounded really technical, but it's about whether 
actually our presidential election system is going to be radically changed going forward in ways that will make what John Eastman and company tried to do last time around on January 6th look like a picnic. And of course, this comes from uh, a clause in the Constitution in Article 1, Section 4, and also in Article 2. I mean, Article 1, the clause in question says, the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Then it goes on to talk about Congress having certain powers. And then the and and in one way of understanding the question is what's a legislature? And for reasons that will become clear by the end of this podcast, here's another way of asking that question. Is the governor part of the legislature? And in ordinary language, people might say, no, the governor is not part of the legislature. The governor is a separate branch. But actually, for hundreds of years in most every state, when states have actually passed laws about presidential elections and congressional elections, they've passed laws that have been presented to the governor for the governor's approbation, approval, or veto. Governors are understood in our practice and in a really important Supreme Court case that goes back almost 100 years. They're understood to be part of the lawmaking system. Does legislature mean, in effect, the House and the Senate that meet in a certain building in the state, um, a capital city? Or does it mean the lawmaking system of a state that would include the governor? Here's why that matters functionally. Governors are picked one person, one vote statewide. There are a bunch of places that have red state legislators, but a blue governor in, in a state like Wisconsin or Michigan, Pennsylvania. That's one thing. A related point is that if governors can be cut out of the loop, if they're not part of the legislature, oh, how do we think about, for example, provisions in the Constitution that talk about Congress? This Congress, which is mentioned a whole bunch of times in the Constitution, does that mean just the House and Senate? Or does that mean the House and Senate and the president? And the answer is sometimes it means one thing, sometimes it means the other. When the president is giving a State of the Union address under a clause that says the president shall from time to time give information on the State of the Union to Congress, Congress means House and Senate. But when it says Congress has power to regulate the territories, oh, that means House and Senate and the president. Okay, so if Congress sometimes involves the president, sometimes doesn't, what's the state legislature? Does it involve the governor or not? And it turns out, for reasons that our audience will understand, by the end of this episode, that's going to really matter for the power of state legislature as well. Is the governor part of the legislature or not? Right, and there are all sorts of other questions. And in this case, of course, Moore versus Harper, a lot of what's at issue are actions that the courts took, that the Supreme Court of North Carolina took in trying to enforce the con- what it saw was the, the, the proper reading of the North Carolina state constitution. If the ISL theory, folks, the, um, win, their next stop it will be, I absolutely predict, and it would follow logically, let's cut the governors out of the loop as well, because they're not, in any ordinary sense, the legislature. And why do they want to cut the governors out of the loop? Because governors are blue in some of these places because they're picked one person, one vote statewide, and so are state judges, picked state Supreme Court judges, one person, one vote statewide. So there are a whole bunch of places that, to repeat, um, have 
red legislatures because of gerrymandering and other things that are actually presidentially blue, one person, one vote, gubernatorially blue, one person, one vote, and state Supreme Court blue, one person, one vote. And they include states today like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, among other places. So I hope I've got your attention. Right. So we're going to we're going to go through the argument, um, you know, by going through the brief. But, you know, there's a little bit of a political analysis here that that uh, is buried in some of the things that that uh, Akil just said, Mm -hmm. Um, because you can see that there's an incentive for Republicans to promote ISL theory because they have advantages in state legislatures because of things like urban clustering and that sort of thing. Just the, the structure of the system yes. favors them in the legislatures and disfavors them in statewide elections, or at least it may not disfavor them, but it doesn't favor them in, right. in statewide elections, one person, one vote elections. And so, so that's, and so that's why you have this situation where you don't see states where the Democrat the, the the Democrats are the majority in the legislature, but the Republican gets the vote. That would go contrary to to the structure of the way these states are set up. And the exactly. other thing that I think was was interesting from which we didn't get into yet from a political point of view, and we'll we'll talk about it in the brief. But just to think about this audience, a lot of times you you think of Republicans as the party of states' rights, and it sounds like this is an attempt to empower states because you're trying to empower the legislature but in fact it's what are the states they're the people of the state and the people of the state under this notion that a legislature is whatever the people say it is through their state constitution that's a way of empowering the people that they get to express their sovereignty by saying they get to express their will by saying this is the structure we want. We want an independent commission. We want referenda. We want that. This is the way that we want our government to be set up, and we don't want the federal government telling us that only the elected legislators are the ones to make decisions for us. So that that actually is an anti-states' rights approach. You're right, but it's not immediate and obvious when you first say it. And so that's why it's going to take us an hour and a half to just explain all of that to the audience. But I do want to reassure everyone that what we're going to do today is going to be a legal analysis. If the best read in the Constitution really were that state legislatures get to make these choices independently, then I would enthusiastically say that's the best reading of the Constitution, that the chips fall where they may. If they help the Democrats, great. If they help the Republicans, that's okay too, because the Constitution means what the Constitution means. I'm going to try to play it straight, but I to get our audience to listen, I want them to understand that there are some political stakes here, and I want them to understand that people in the Republican Party might begin – you know, with a preference for trying to read the Constitution one way over the other. And I'm going to, in the end, say, I know why you might want that preference. I can see it as a political scientist, but let's actually look at the law of the thing. And Andy, I think now we can we can at least have our first big reveal, yes. because this brief, this amicus brief, isn't just signed by Akhil Amar, who happens to be a registered Democrat, by Vic Amar, who's a registered Democrat, but, oh, we've got a third scholar to sign it who's remotely a registered Democrat. 
And drum roll, please. That third, and Andy knows the answer. That third scholar is? Stephen Calabresi, the co-founder and national chairman of the Federalist Society. And And my dear friend from uh, way back, we teach a class together at Yale on originalism. This is an originalist brief. This is going to be liberal originalism in in the sense that it's just going to be well done originalism. But this time around, it's going to actually lead to a result that the Democrats like. Our audience knows that when the originalism leads to results that Republicans like, the Dobbs case, the Bruin case, I'm for originalism, even when it, it helps co- uh, the conservatives. But in this case, it's going to help the Democratic Party, and our audience will see originalism at work, and will see it doesn't always lead to conservative r- results. And good for Steve for joining with us to help show that point. Yeah, I um, mean, I have to say I have a lot of respect for, for this move by Steve, because, you know, we've been saying in recent months and we've talked we've talked about ISL before and we've said this is going to be a good test of the court why is it going to be a good test of the court because we recognize that the political incentives are on one side yes and we believe that the constitution is on the other side exactly and so if they and and particularly the constitution when looked at through an originalist lens so as I as I've said in in the last episode if the court pretend originalism is simply pretensions then the political motivations might shine through. On the other hand, if the originalism is, is sincere, then the result, and we, th- we think, should be straightforward and obvious. And that's, that's wh- why Akil and Vic and Steve decide to write this brief, because they want to present the best originalist evidence to the court so that they could make the proper decision. And we've had Vic before. Today, our audience is going to hear from me very shortly in a future episode. We're going to have Steve come on the podcast to give his perspective on all this. As long as we're giving shout outs to principled conservatives who are doing the right thing even before the, the oral argument, which is going to be in December, and the opinions, which are going to be coming down in, in the spring, Andy, some other briefs have recently been filed in this case in which some leading conservatives have actually done the right thing. Right. So the, the brief for respondents, for the joint brief for respondents, which um, our friend Neil Katyal is, is counsel on that. Um, and the respondents are the, the folks who are critiquing ISL. Um, and, and, and you mentioned Neil. He's the main lawyer. Who's, he's, of course, been on our podcast b- b- before, the former acting solicitor general. Yeah. So. He filed a brief against the ISL crowd, the, the main official party brief, along with another one by another um, a former Solicitor General, Don Verley. But whom did he get to join his brief? Right. So Judge J. Michael Ludig, who the, the New Yorker describes as perhaps the most conservative judge in the country. I don't know if I buy that, but, but he certainly is a prominent conservative. And he is taking this principal stand um, and joined their brief. A former judge, he was on the United States Court of Appeals, I believe, for the Fourth Circuit, was often mentioned as a possible Supreme Court candidate. So he's joining my side, Steve's side, Vic's side, Neil's side, the anti-ISL side, the anti-John Eastman side, and John Eastman clerked for him way back when. Okay, so Michael Ludig, there are other amicus briefs that have been joined by 
my friend Peter Keisler, former acting attorney general of the United States and the co-founders really of the Federalist Society, joined by uh, Judge uh, Griffith, prominent and very well-respected Republican judge, Jack Danforth. So there have been interesting uh, leading Republicans saying ISL is bunk. Right. Okay, so that's where we are now. So the case, uh, just to summarize, you know, the case is, is scheduled for oral argument on December 7th. And December 7th. Yes. Ah, a day ah. that will live in fame, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and this brief, which is a, a, a type of brief called an Amici Curiae brief, friend of the court, friends of friends. the court. Yes, plural. Friends of the court. Um, has been, uh, is they're due, I think, in two days, something like that. But this brief is already filed, and you can actually access it on the Supreme Court website. But, of course, we're going to also put the brief up on our website. But right now we're going to give you sort of a, uh, an annotated version of the brief. Uh, we're going to actually go through it, clause by clause, paragraph by paragraph, in the, in the brief, and we'll stop here and there uh, for commentary to explain things. Because, again, we assume... Uh, certain things on the part of the uh, the court that the court knows the facts of the case and some you know some other things. So uh, you know we'll we'll explain things that aren't self-explanatory um, in the brief. Now there were three people on the brief, but other people worked on the brief. Isn't that right? Uh, indeed. So it's interesting that you sort of say, and we are amici curiae, friends of the court. We're also. Three amigos, the three friends, you know, think, you know, Matthew Perry and Jennifer Aniston or something. Perry has a new book coming out about his experience on that TV show. So the three people who are the authors of the brief and who have to stand by every word in the brief are in alphabetical order, Akhil Amar, Vic Amar, and Stephen Calabresi, the, the three of us. Okay. But we did not do this at all alone. We had amazing help from five or six people in particular, actually eight or nine people in particular. Andy Lipka, who read every single draft and made comment after comment after comment. Some of them um, were actually reasonable. Uh, we took, uh, we, uh, when we read the brief, I'm, we're going to pause from time to time and I'm going to say, this one's Andy's, you know, this one's Andy's. Uh, Andy told us about this. Um, uh, Andy talked us out of that. So Andy Lipka, uh, with vast legal experience as a, an ophthalmologist. I'm joking because I haven't taken the bar either, Andy. And neither has Steve, for that matter. We're just law professor types. In addition to Vic, who is the formal counsel of record, because he has taken a bar, he clicked for the Supreme Court, as did Steve. He, he clicked for Anton Scalia. We have a great friend who's an amazing litigator up in Boston who helped us at every stage and at the end, and we'll talk about this in the episode, saved me uh, from a couple of glitches that were even in the what we thought was the final draft five days ago. The great Chris Duggan, a great litigator lawyer up in, in Boston, and we're going to talk about him. And an amazing team of Yale Law students who did just heroic research and editing, led by Jacob Hutt. He was the head student on this project. And by the way, he's from your hometown, Andy, Roslyn, New York, Long Island. And the other folks on the team, uh, Jordan K. Ron, Jordan Thomas, Isabella So Parker, Russell Bogue, Arshan Barzani, uh, Gavin Langraf, Melissa Muller. 
an amazing team, some of the smartest aspiring lawyers at Yale Law School, law students who really, and I think, candidly, our brief compares very well to the party's briefs generated by dozens of the greatest lawyers in America, helping Neil on his brief, helping Don Verrilli on his brief. And this, this small little team of three amigos, aided by their um, amigos, Andy Lipka, Chris Duggan, and this great TA team, I, I think we've done a great job together. And we're going to, I hope, do more in the future. And Andy, one final thing before we start reading the brief, this was your brainchild, just like the podcast was. You said, Akil, if you're really serious about getting your ideas out in the world, you have to do things like a podcast. You need to get the students involved. You need to write briefs for the Supreme Court so that they can actually hear the ideas that you're preaching. These are all Andy Lipka ideas. Okay, so that's where we are. So let's, and, and we'll talk some more about what, you know, went into this project in the first place. But let's, uh, let's get to it. So, Akil, you're going to read the brief for us, and we'll stop and comment from time to time. Yes. So... Just by way of background, we're because we're Amici, we have to comply with all sorts of rules for Amici Curie, friends of the court. The brief has to be 8,000 words or less. I think we clocked in at about 7,980 words. We had 20 words to spare. And I think with luck, Andy, we'll maybe get through like the first half of the brief today, second half next time around, and then we'll bring Steve Calabresi on to comment and give us additional backstory. Now, one thing, audience, in terms of footnotes, um, or and yeah, footnotes. Um, some of the footnotes are very important. And we're going to read them. Others are, you know, citation after citation to state constitutions, and we probably will just say, like, here's a bunch of state constitutions that we cite to. Right. Um, and the, the the rules of the Supreme Court actually specify a certain format, and we tried to comply to the T with all the rules. The rules require that the brief begin with a statement of the interest of Amici Curiae. So here's how we begin. Keel Reed Amar, Vikram David Amar, and Stephen Gao Calabresi are constitutional scholars and historians who seek to aid this court in its efforts to practice principled constitutional decision-making and faithful originalism. So it's one sentence, Andy, and here's what we're trying to say. We are trying to actually help the court get it right. And that's really our only interest. It's not political. As you and I have been discussing, Steve actually is a Republican. Vic and I are, are Democrats. Our interest in the case is, as it were, our disinterest. We're not uninterested. We care passionately, but not because we have skin in the game as parties. We have no money at stake. Nothing like that. We're just saying we are trying to be friends of the court, we're going to try to help it do the principled decision-making and faithful originalism that it is promising to America in its recent jurisprudence. That's, that's what it says it wants to do, and we want to help the court do that in the best possible way. So, you know, one might say, well, you know, why are you in, why do they need your help? Why are, why are you in a position to help them? You know, because they're good lawyers, they can reason. You know, is it because of your reasoning or is it because of something about your scholarship? So, Andy, let me now read you the, um, the next section of the brief that begins to answer that question. And again, this is the format that the court rules themselves 
impose on Amici. So after that brief statement of interest, um, we offer a summary of our argument. And in this summary, we elaborate a little bit more on what we are trying to do and what value add we are, are, are hoping to offer. Summary of argument. In recent landmark rulings, this court has properly recommitted itself to originalism, promising to interpret the Constitution as Americans publicly understood the document when adopting it, with special attention to governmental actions immediately preceding and immediately glossing the enacted text. And we have sites to the Dobbs case and the Bruin case. That's what the court says trying to do. Principled originalism compels rejection of petitioners' claims. That's the ISL folks. The more one knows about the Constitution's text, history, and deep structure, the clearer it is that petitioners must lose. Petitioners also defy a long and consistent line of this court's decisive precedence, a line that itself exemplifies principled originalism. Now, there's a footnote, and I'm going to come back to the footnote, but I'm just going to, for now, just keep reading the text because it answers the question, Andy, that you posed. Petitioners, again, that's the ISL folks, flout core tenets of the American founding. State constitutions, the pride and joy of revolutionary Americans, outranked mere state statutes, just as the federal constitution outranked mere federal statutes. State Supreme Courts operated as specially privileged interpreters of state laws and state constitutions, much as this court, that is the U.S. Supreme Court, operated as a specially privileged interpreter of federal laws and the federal constitution. The federal constitution confirmed the wide freedom of each state's people via its state constitution to restructure its future governmental institutions, provided each state remained Republican in form and substance. If the federal constitution had intended to severely limit a state's future ability to reallocate power between its own governmental branches or between its own voters and elected officials, or if the federal constitution meant to give a faraway federal court lacking expertise in state law, that is the U.S. Supreme Court, carte blanche over ordinary state law issues, then we would expect to see abundant evidence for these pulverizations of the bedrock principles of 1776. Anti-Federalists would have sounded alarms. Federalists would have had lots of explaining to do. Petitioners offer nothing close to the massive evidence required. And now, Andy, we're beginning to move into our expertise as scholars of American history, as originalists. Right, so you've sort of set up what it is that, what is the factual inquiry that one needs to, you know, one needs to make? You know, where is the evidence? And right. there's where your expertise, in part, lies, because an historian of the founding knows what people said, what went on, you know, the, knows the actual, obviously, history. And that's what you need to know in order to know what went on at the, at the founding for the, to answer this question. Right. So let me back to the summary of argument. And here's where we try to close the, the deal, at least initially, and explain what it is that we hope to offer our, our value add. And there are mountains of evidence on the other side. That is our side of the case, Neil's side, the anti-ISL side, namely early state constitutions and legislative practices. And this next sentence is italicized. Every single state that adopted a constitution in the critical time period, late 1777 through 1793, or that otherwise squarely addressed the issue, 
nine states in all, openly contradicted petitioner's vision. No state embraced this vision. Elephants do not hide in mouse holes. That's an expression that the Supreme Court uses. Yet petitioners would have us believe that T-Rexes lurk in insect holes. And that, that idea is basically big ideas. You're going to find a lot of evidence for them, not a little bit. In particular, petitioners grossly exaggerate the significance of one or two post-ratification politicos whose ideas fail to carry the day anywhere. And then there's petitioners' invocation of the alleged Pinckney plan. The language petitioners have trumpeted to this court is phony. This language was no part of the real Pinckney plan actually presented to the Philadelphia Convention. Beginning around 1819, a bogus document masqueraded as the Pinckney plan. This bogus document was immediately questioned by James Madison and definitively discredited more than a century ago. Facts well known to expert historians. The true story appears in the short appendix to Ferran's records that petitioners cite, but apparently never read to the end. Petitioners actually lead their brief with this fake and call this sham precursor to Article 1, Section 4, quote, crucial, unquote, to their argument. Just the last couple of paragraphs, Andy, and then let's talk about what um, this opening section is trying to do and why. This error by the petitioners is important both for its own sake and for a deeper point. Petitioners are not expert historians, alas, not even competent ones. We do not question their integrity, but do challenge their reliability and credibility. Every justice should exercise extreme caution before accepting any of petitioners' assertions. Their brief is littered with major misstatements and half-truths. We lack space to address them all, but highlight the biggest ones. We ourselves do not claim infallibility, here or elsewhere. Errors doubtless infect our own work, but we do claim genuine expertise as legal scholars and historians. We three speak today as blunt but true amici curiae, that is, friends of the court, and we intend to file future blunt briefs in other cases. Proper originalism is serious business, and the court needs to hear from serious scholars, especially when asked by adventurous litigants to embrace new doctrines with vast and dangerous implications for our republic. Today and in other briefs, we will advance nonpartisan positions that we have taken as academics long before any partisan implications could have been known. We're dismayed that many legal scholars and academic historians today view their scholarship as extensions of their personal politics. By contrast, we aim to help the court get the law and the facts right, regardless of whose political ox is gored. In the spirit of candor, we offer below, in this brief, direct answers to the big questions raised by the case. We also steer the court to reliable primary sources and secondary scholarship, providing more detail than we can offer in this brief brief. Okay. So basically, you say, here's an argument, and in order for this argument to be valid, here's the evidence that you would, you would need to have, and we're going to provide you with that evidence. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the other side makes arguments that rely they say crucially on so-called evidence, which isn't even true. Yes. It's fake. It's bogus. It's a fraud. So what is the Pinckney plan? 
that you that you refer to that that uh, I mean I, I understand why you didn't want to make too big a deal of it in the brief because it's not so much that they're wrong as that you're right um, but so it's not just a matter of tearing down the opponents but ra- rather making an argument but still it, I think for people to understand this what you've just said here they need to know what the picnic plan is and and it is a major embarrassment and i'm sure that it was not intentional because it doesn't really help to put forth something that's easily refuted as false but it goes to their substantive argument because they said it was crucial they led with this point and said it was crucial so it goes to their substantive argument and it also i'm sounding like a lawyer here goes to credibility your honor okay mm-hmm. in law and order goes to credibility your honor okay so we're saying their substantive argument unravels because it's based on something that's actually not true. And the fact that actually the experts have long known this is not true shows that these guys are actually trying to practice legal history without a license, so to speak. They really don't know their stuff. And we claim that we do because this is what we do day in and day out as scholars. And the court can't easily be expert on every single thing. Stephen Breyer Five times in Bruin, you know, reminds the audience that he's not a historian. And last week we were joking about Star Trek and you were talking about what, what McCoy would all say. You know, I'm a doctor, Jim. You know, I'm not an historian. You know, I'm not a lawyer. You know, I'm not a physicist and I'm not an injured. I'm a doctor, Jim. And, and, and Justice Breyer, who's coming on the pro- podcast in the weeks ahead, says, listen, I'm not an historian. And we're saying, hey. We actually are. We're legal historians, and, and unlike other historians, we actually think we have certain expertise on what kind of historical evidence counts and what doesn't. But back to your question, what is the so-called Pinckney Plan? It was on the very first day of the convention at Philadelphia, the draft of the Constitution, George Washington's picked um, as the presiding officer, and the Virginia delegation, led by its Governor Edmund Randolph says, here's a proposed constitution. We've kind of, our delegation has come up with it. Madison played a key role in crafting it. Washington, in fact, signed on on it there in the Virginia delegation, but it's presented by the governor of the state, Edmund Randolph, because he's kind of the, the formal head of the delegation. So he proposes this document that then they proceed to discuss ensuing days because because virginia is the biggest state and by far back then it included kentucky was now kentucky includes now west virginia it's the most powerful and most populous state and they've got a plan on day one and now there's this other guy he's actually i think either the youngest or the second youngest person there at philadelphia his name is charles pinckney he's an ambitious guy but you know uh, Edmund Randolph, he is not. He's not the governor of the biggest state. Oh, but he's got some ideas, too. And he's written them down on a piece of paper. And he says, oh, I've got a plan, too. And they say, thank you very much. Uh, uh, and as we were saying, let's talk about the Virginia plan, okay, which they proceed to talk about for several weeks, the Virginia plan. And nothing is heard about this Pinckney plan. But he 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 has this piece of paper. The Virginia plan is somewhat nationalistic. And people kind of, they create a thing called a committee of the whole to deliberate on it. And at a certain point, then the state's rights push back and they say, actually, you've been thinking about this Virginia plan. We small state folks, we state's rights folks have a different plan that we'd like you to consider. This is put forth by a man named Patterson. It's sometimes called the New Jersey plan. So historians talk about the Randolph plan or the Virginia plan. It's the big state plan, the nationalist plan. And it's countered after a few weeks by a thing called 
the Patterson plan or New Jersey plan. That's discussed. And eventually, mainly the New Jersey plan is defeated, but the one thing they kind of do succeed in is making sure that the Senate will represent small states equally with two senators per state. When they finally, and that takes weeks and weeks of wrangling, they're exhausted, they've come up with kind of some tentative propositions, and now they're going to send it to a committee to take those tentative propositions and work them up into a draft constitution. It's called the Committee of Detail. So, so they refer everything to the committee, and then, in effect, Pinkney says, oh, wait a minute, I, I, had, I had a plan, too. Remember, but he doesn't have, you know, the backing of um, lots of states or the biggest state. So they say, oh, yeah, we'll refer that piece of paper to the committee as well. They, they can take it under advisement. And no one really talks about it. Years pass, and the secret Philadelphia Convention records are going to be published by the, the national government. The Secretary of State is John Quincy Adams under President James Monroe. This is like 1819, and he's going to publish the official journal of the convention, and he actually puts out a call saying, if any of the delegates are still arrive and you've got some notes or something like that, hey, it'd be great if you send them along so I can include them in this publication. And Pinckney sends in this thing. He says, I'm not entirely sure, 100% sure, that this is what I propose, but I think so. And he sends it along, and it gets published, and it basically is a very close approximation of the final copy of the Constitution in certain respects. So Pinckney is basically in 1819 trying to steal the credit, like, I wrote the Constitution. Madison, meanwhile, is livid. You know, he says, like, wait a minute, that's not at all what Pinckney proposed. That doesn't tr- jive with my, you know, memory. He's sending letters to other folks. Most of the people are dead uh, by the time. But the Pinckney plan gets published as a piece of paper that he really, that really was deliberated on by the committee. It's now conclusively disproved as a fake, as a, as a fraud. He may, it may just have been he misremembered the thing, but it, he gave them a piece of paper that was com- uh, on a, a watermarked paper decades later that couldn't have been a contemporaneous document. Every serious historian knows that the, what um, he called the Pinckney Plan and what for a few years actually masqueraded this Pinckney Plan was nothing of the sort. The petitioners actually thought that this was a, a document that actually had gone to the con- uh, the committee and was really carefully considered. What's crucial to the argument is that document said, oh, each state shall do X. And what the committee ended up saying is, oh, the legislature shall do X. So they must have made a very, very deliberate decision, the committee, to repudiate the, the, the idea of state and instead substitute legislature. But of course, none of it ever happened. And why does that, why would that be important for ISL if they said state rather than legislature? Well, I don't think it's actually that important, even if it were all true, but I don't want to go down all right. that rabbit hole. I can't, you know, follow them down every crummy argument. It's crummy on the merits, in my view, not very persuasive. But if it's fake, then, you know, um, we don't right. need to go any further. Right. But they say it's crucial. So, yes, they say it's crucial. So, I don't. So, since it's false, since it's fake, what aside from credibility, right? You say, well, they're not credible. What else does it remove? What is it? What are they left with um, in their in their argument? Well, let me take a step back because we, you know, have had many episodes on originalism. Originalism, in my view, isn't about secret stuff. This was a secret committee within a secret convention. No one in the uh, no American know anything about this. They're confronted with the actual constitution. 
and they're going to actually vote yes or no. I think originalism well done focuses on what they actually agreed to in a public setting. And so here's the key evidence, not this draft or that one secretly behind closed doors. What they actually saw is a constitution. And what are they going to be comparing it to? Not the Pinckney draft. They don't even know it exists until 1819. And in fact, it's a bogus document. They're going to be comparing it to the Articles of Confederation, which is a public document. And on the issue of picking congresspersons, it turns out the constitutional language that you quoted earlier, Andy, in Article 1, Section 4, is exactly the same, basically, as in the Articles of Confederation. Originalism well done would then say, ah, how did people um, understand that those words of the Articles of Confederation, which was proposed in 1777, ratified four years later, so it's been in operation from 1781 to 1787, six years of operation. How did people actually understand that Articles of Confederation document um, and its words, because those are the words that actually the U.S. Constitution is echoing? That's originalism. Well done. It's not looking at a dictionary. It's not looking at secret convention history that no a ratifier could have understood is looking to what we, the people of the United States would have thought we were getting when we say, yes, we approve the constitution. So the articles of confederation said something on this, on this question, on the question of, of um, who gets to make the rules for the elections. Right. And that's going to be the next section of the brief. When I start to talk, uh, to, uh, when we start to tell the court, what actually is the right history to look at and why. And we, so we think, in fact, we just didn't, you know, the only had so much room in the brief. The Pinckney plan is just the wrong place to look at, even if it had been valid, mm-hmm. but it's not valid. And this is a joke, but the, the joke is, you know, that I'm hopelessly lost in rural Maine. And I rolled, I rolled down the window because there's a, a farmer in the field and I say, excuse me, sir, can, can you tell me how to get to Portland? And he looks at me and he says, well, I wouldn't start from here. Okay. So I, the place that I wouldn't start from is, you know, a, a, a secret piece of paper, even if it were valid. And this is the difference between, and it's not liberal versus conservative. It's proper originalism versus folks who actually don't quite know how to do proper originalism. Right. So uh, what, I'd, what I'd like to set up for the listeners now as they, you know, as we go into the next section of, of the brief is you know, you go into stuff about the articles and, and the various state constitutions and what they say, and I just want them to understand why we care about that. And and so, if ISL theory uh, is false, let's say, and that the legislature is whatever the people of the state say it is, okay, at a given time, then that would mean that the states would be able to draft constitutions that tell the legislature that limit the legislature that yes. say to the legislature well yeah you can make the rules but they have to do this they have to you know, whatever the whatever the constitution says say you can't pick presidential electors right. only the voters in the state can pick presidential electors but even if the constitution says you know you have to vote have people vote in the morning you know that still state would be right yeah that still would be the state constitution not the legislature you know the, the legislature legislative body would be constricted or bounded by the right. state constitution. And ISLers would say, you can't do that. So if Correct. you couldn't do that, then they wouldn't be doing it. 
right? In other words, they wouldn't be doing it in the time right okay. after they. So that's that. That's going to be the next couple of sections. Now, remember, I jumped. I skipped over some footnotes. I'll come back to those. But let's just follow this flow of originalism. What we did in the summary of argument is say this document is bogus, so you can't rely on that. Right. So now we're going to get into the, that was the summary of argument. Now we get into the argument. Correct. And what, one thing that this brief does differently than other briefs that I've seen in the past is it's structured almost like an, an FAQ, a frequently asked questions. You have a series of questions. I think there's 10 questions. Um, and then you provide answers for them, which, you know, is interesting because that's, you know, one might think, well, if these are really the questions that the court's thinking about, then the oral argument may parallel this brief in some way. It is like a Q&A of a good oral argument, I think. Yes. And But that's uh, an innovation, I think. So let's, you know, let the audience, it, it, you know, listen to it and see whether they think it's effective. Yeah, it, it looks a little different than many of their briefs um, in, in style. So uh, there are 10 questions that we tee up. Here's the first. What core constitutional question does this case raise? Our answer. In a nutshell, ISL theory. Less cryptically, petitioner's challenge is premised on what has come to be known as the independent state legislature, that is ISL, theory, which claims that under Article 1 and also under Article 2 governing presidential elections, each state's ordinary elected legislature enjoys a federal entitlement to have its enactments concerning federal election logistics take full effect, notwithstanding anything in the state constitution that creates and bounds the legislature. ISL thus denies the ability of states through their constitutions to decide what the state legislature consists of what its procedure shall be, and what substantive limits it must respect. ISLers also say that even if some state constitutional limits do legitimately constrain a given state's ordinary elected legislature, federal rather than state courts should primarily interpret and uh, and apply these limits. Okay, so that should be, Andy, that, that first question you know, by this point, our audience should be nodding their heads like, yeah, that's what we talked about early in the podcast. We get that. Okay, get on with it. So you do have a footnote here. I do, and I'm going to skip some footnotes for now just so you hear the main flow of the argument, and we'll come back to some of those footnotes, Andy, if we have some time later. That, that's fine, but let me just point out that, that someone listening to this, you read this right now, might say, what do you mean ISLers say that some state constitutional limits might legitimately constrain that. That's very different from what we've been saying about it all along. And that's what the footnote deals with. So we'll, we'll come the, the, back yes. to that. Yeah, the petitioners waffle in certain ways. And we basically say, when you reach a fork in the road, take it. Um, take it. And, he says that. And, and that actually is one of the things that Yogi Berra actually really did say, apparently. I know he very famously said that he didn't say all the things that he said. But I think that one's a really Yogi Berraism. But that's, you know, a good place for a footnote because reading it raises a question and the footnote answers the question. Right. Here's question two. And this is a little bit more elaborate. And now we're getting into the meat of the argument. How does ISL fare under an originalist lens? Because remember, we're saying to the court, we actually are a historian, legal historians, and um, we can help you with originalism. Because you're, I'm, I'm a doctor, Jim, not an historian. I'm a judge, not an historian. Okay, how does ISL fare under an originalist lens? Our answer, miserably. 
start with the text. What does, quote, shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, unquote, mean? In particular, what is a state legislature, in quotes, for these purposes? What is a state legislature? More precisely still, may a, quote, legislature, unquote, include a veto pen-wielding governor? May it consist of an independent agency or the people themselves engaged in direct democracy via initiatives, referenda, conventions, or town meetings? May a state constitution permissibly define its state, quote, legislature, unquote, to mean a body that must regulate federal elections in a particular substantive manner? Our answers. The public meaning of state legislature, in quotes, was clear at the time of ratification. A state's legislature, in quotes, was not just something created to make laws on behalf of the people. It was something created and constrained by the state constitution. This basic starting point, that state legislatures were creatures of state constitutions, creatures whose very existence and shape derived from state constitution, suffices to defeat ISL. As a matter of founding era first principles, when Article 1 refers to and empowers state legislatures, in quotes, it means things inherently subordinate to their state peoples and state constitutions. Article 1 takes state legislatures as it finds them. That is as defined and limited by their parent constitutions. Now I'm going to give you some history. The adoption of new Republican state constitutions across the American continent was a transcendent achievement in the late 1770s, acclaimed by Americans everywhere. These new state constitutions were the beating heart of the American Revolution. In a now famous letter to his wife, Abigail, on May 17, 1776, John Adams explained with pride and awe the monumental import of the Confederation Congress's decisive vote to encourage each state to adopt its own new state constitution. Here's John Adams writing to Abbott, quote, a whole state government of our own choice, managed by persons whom we love, revere, and confide in, has charms for which men will fight, unquote. So he's saying that's what we're going to be fighting for, state constitutions. The American Revolution is about to take a dramatic turn militarily. So, of course, state constitutions were understood as supreme over state legislatures at the founding. And, of course, state courts could and did enforce these state higher laws against state legislatures. Prominent state judicial review under state constitutions predated the Philadelphia Convention, the Federalist Number 78, which is all about federal judicial review, and Marbury versus Madison. Um, which is all about judicial review at the federal level. Indeed, state constitutions formed the basic template for the federal constitution. I'll read you a couple more paragraphs, Andy, and then maybe we'll take a, a break, pause, and consider the argument thus far. The language and logic of the Article VI supremacy... So I just gave you some history. Now I'm going to give you some text. The language and logic of the Article VI supremacy clause confirmed the supremacy of state constitutions over mere state statutes in the very same breath that the clause confirmed the supremacy of the federal constitution over mere federal statutes. The clause, that is the supremacy clause, enumerated five types of law. In every instance, the textual location of each type of law tracked its legal rank from highest law 
to Lois Law. U.S. Constitution came first, then federal statutes, then federal treaties, then state constitutions, then state statutes. In that order, textually and legally. So I, I put a couple, some numbers in so you hear now the text of the Supremacy Clause. One, this Constitution, and two, the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and Three, all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in four, the Constitution, or five, laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. Listen again with fresh ears to Chief Justice John Marshall's concluding passage in Marbury v. Madison. In declaring what shall be the supreme law of the land, the Constitution itself is first mentioned, and not the laws of the United States generally, but those only which shall be made in pursuance of the Constitution have that rank. Thus, the particular phraseology of the Constitution of the United States confirms and strengthens the principle supposed to be essential to all written constitutions that a law repugnant to the Constitution is void and that courts, as well as other departments, are bound by that instrument. So basically, you're talking quite a bit about state constitutions being superior to state statutes. In the same way, exactly the same way as the federal constitution is superior to federal statutes. And the state constitution is relevant because the state constitution creates the legislature, and it creates it in, in a, a way where the, where the state legislature has a certain structure, and it's it's supposed to it's allowed to do certain things and it's not allowed to do other things. And who enforces some of those things? The state supreme court, just like at the federal level, the U.S. Supreme Court enforces the federal constitution against Congress. Yes, you've got it just so. And now I'm going to come to the so I've done some you know conceptual history. They thought state constitutions were the heart and soul of the American Revolution. I have a footnote where I cite some folks. I'm just going to read one sentence from the book. The words that made us. And I wrote this, remember, long ago, not even thinking about ISL. But here's what I wrote in the book about John Adams and this amazing 70, 1776 moment. Uh, and this is in a, in a footnote where I also cite Gordon Wood, who saw the point first, of course, as he saw so many points first. And, of course, he's been on our podcast. And, Andy, we should get him back at some point, maybe to talk about this issue. Here's the quote from the book. If we are to understand what all the shouting was about in 1776, what the main point of the conversation was, we must first ponder the state constitutions that sprouted like so many daffodils up and down the continent in the springtime of the new world. They were so darn proud of these state constitutions that they were going to adopt, that they were going to authorize the government and structure it and limit it. And that includes, of course, the legislature, which is merely a creature of these state constitutions coming from the state people. So that's the history and the text of the Supremacy Clause. And now I'm about to tell you a little bit more history that will really help uh, seal the deal. Of course, one might, you know, the thing that comes to mind, I think when you hear all this is, well, okay, they, they, they liked their state constitutions, they were proud of them. Um, you know, why, why is that important for ISL? And I think one thing that comes to mind is that, well, it doesn't seem like they would want to undermine these state constitutions by saying, 
actually legislature, you can go and do what you want, regardless of what the state constitution says when it comes to this. Or if they were going to do that, they would say that they're going to do that. Very clearly. You, you, we, we want to be, you want these places to be independent of Britain, but not independent of their state constitutions, you see. So that's what I'm going to explain now in the next few paragraphs. I, mean, I keep saying I, of course, is we. It's the three of us. Um, but today I'm, I'm, just gonna, I'm just reading it on behalf of, of all of the team. Now consider America's experience under the Articles of Confederation in words that directly foreshadowed the words of Article I's election clause, the Confederation's Article V expressly provided that, quote, delegates to the Confederation Congress shall be annually appointed in such manner as the legislature of each state shall direct. Okay, so that's so similar to the Constitution language. Between the time this text was finalized in November 1777 and the time the Constitution's essentially identical text was unveiled about a decade later, there were three and only three states that adopted or revised their state constitutions. Each of these three state constitutions expressly regulated its state legislature in the selection of Confederation congressmen. Thus, in all three of the states that engaged in state constitution-making in the wake of the Articles of Confederation, the elected state legislatures were emphatically not independent. Concretely, the 1778 South Carolina Constitution, remember the Articles have been um, uh, proposed in 1777, the 1778 South Carolina Constitution required state lawmakers to choose Confederation congressmen by ballot, that is, in effect, secret ballot in writing, um, rather than viva voce. The Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 specified the month and manner in which the legislature had to appoint Confederation congressmen. June, meeting in joint session in one room. And the New Hampshire Constitution of 1784 prescribed the timing and legislative action, as well as the qualifications of eligible congressional delegations, among other things. The words of the Articles of Confederation, in such manner as the legislature of each state shall direct, And the later words of the Constitution, the manner shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, are semantically indistinguishable. The Constitution simply echoed the articles on this point. See, they're not getting anything from Pinckney. They're just getting it from the articles. You see, here's the key point. If state constitutions could and did dictate rules for the state legislatures in the congressional selection process under the articles, surely state constitutions could likewise dictate rules for state legislatures in the congressional selection process under the Constitution. Or at and least if they weren't going to... Then and we'd see would... a, lot, a lot of clear evidence, exactly. Indeed, that is indeed, two words. State constitutions did just that. Post-ratification, state constitutions continued to do precisely what they had done pre-ratification, namely regulate state legislatures in the domain of congressional selection. And now here's some data. Six of the seven state constitutions that were adopted or revised in the Constitution's earliest years of operation regulated the manner of federal elections and thereby cabined the independence of state legislatures. Delaware's 1792 Constitution required that voters elect congressional representatives at the same places and in the same manner as state representatives. 
three other state constitutions, Georgia's in 1789, Pennsylvania's in 1790, and Kentucky's in 1792, required that all elections be by ballot rather than viva voce. And these are all quotes uh, from the constitutions, I should probably say. Constitution. You're not exactly. saying quote unquote because it would be very tedious, but, but right. th- these are all direct quotes from the constitutions. Right. Though not singling out congressional and presidential elections by name, these provisions by their express terms applied to all elections. Annual elections for statewide office, of course, but also biannual elections for federal House members and whatever quadrennial elections for presidential electors might operate in the future. Likewise, now this is a paragraph that Andy loves for reasons that we're going to explain very shortly. Likewise, the 1792 New Hampshire Constitution and the 1793 Vermont Constitution spoke universally in promising that, quote, elections of every sort ought to be free. Even stronger language, elections shall be free and equal, appeared in the 1790 Pennsylvania Constitution and the 1792 Kentucky and Delaware Constitution. Uh, um, uh, I'm sorry. Even stronger language, elections shall be free and equal, appeared in the 1790 Pennsylvania Constitution. And the 1792 Kentucky and Delaware Constitutions were, if anything, even more categorical. All elections, emphasis added, shall be free and equal. At least four pre-1788 state constitutions, Virginia's, Maryland's, North Carolina's in 1776, Massachusetts's in 1780, had similar language. Now, here's the punchline. These clauses are obvious precursors of the language of the current North Carolina Constitution that petitioners cavalierly denigrate in their question presented and elsewhere as improperly vague. This is the very language in the North Carolina Constitution that was relied on by the North Carolina Supreme Court um, to limit the North Carolina legislature and the ISLers are saying, oh no, that's that's ridiculous. The state courts are trying to use this, you know, weird and vague language. This weird and vague language comes from basically nine early state constitutions. It'd be like saying, oh, that consent of the governed language that all men are created equal language, you know, who cares about that? You know, oh, freedom of speech, that's so vague. Freedom of the press, so vague. And Andy, maybe you want to tell them, uh, I'll go on, but the backstory of that paragraph. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the idea here that that the states are copying each other in, in the language of things that they consider important, um, you know, is is a key concept. Of course, you emphasize it in the words that made, made us. And before, you know, it, it might seem a small thing, but... Um, this paragraph actually flowed, was, was part of the previous paragraph. And so it just seems like it's, well, okay, one after the other, talking about constitutions that uh, did something that went afoul of ISL theory. You know, they implemented, they said, oh, by ballot or, or, you know, whatever, or, or um, you know, in the same manner or at the same place or whatever. And here's just other things that they do. But no, this is particularly important because this is the very language that petitioners are dismissing as completely irrelevant um, in the North Carolina country, vague, and it's, you know, you can't pay any attention to it. They shouldn't have done that as they're running afoul of the federal constitution. And that's, that's crazy because this is clearly was fundamental to these states because they keep copying each other. You know, and, I, and I buried the lead, you know, because at first I didn't really appreciate how significant, oh, I said, oh my goodness, 
This is the very precursor language of the clause at issue today. And I, and I was so overwhelmed, you know, tracing down this constitution and that one and all the rest. At first, I didn't see it. And Andy, who has a little bit more detached, me says, you know, you, you just might want to add a paragraph right here and just really highlight that. And and then once we did that, we actually found some more constitutions. The TA team found some other great stuff. So it turns out, and you won't find this actually in some of the other briefs, there's way more of these state constitutions with this exact same language that's that issue of today than um, actually had been recognized before. And Andy, it all began with your smallest of little editorial suggestions. You, We didn't add a word. We were, you know, Andy keeps telling me you have to add this, add this. Said, Andy, we're up against, you know, page limits. We can't do this. He says, Akhil, this isn't going to add a single word. It's just going to add some nice creative white space. Why don't you just put a paragraph break here? But once we did that, we started to see just how important that paragraph was, and we ended up finding more and more evidence. And we, so Andy, and we wind up you. italicizing the entire last sentence of the paragraph, you know, so that we're emphasizing at the beginning and at the end. So, you know, the, my, my point here is it was really like we need to emphasize this point. And then, yes. here, then it was a question of how to suggest. I suggested how we and actually Andy, did emphasize it. Right. And, and as our audience knows, I always listen to you. Well, or at least most of the time. Yeah, you listen, okay. and then you go do whatever the hell you want. Anyway, that's fine. <laughs> Okay, um, so um, back to the brief. No early state legislature, none, flaunted its supposed independence by flouting its state constitution. Petitioners do not cite a single actual example of an early state legislature regulating congressional elections contra its state constitution. Petitioners do, however, cite two fake examples, and that's another footnote, and I won't talk about it now. Moreover... The two 1789 states that provided for vetoes of general legislative action employed such veto provisions in federal election legislation. Remember way back when I said, is the governor part of the legislature or not? This is going to be key on that. In Massachusetts, bills regulating federal elections were not enacted by the legislative houses alone, but were presented to and subject to disapproval by the governor in 1789. In New York, such bills went to a council of revision that included the governor and various state judges. In these two key places, the only states with veto rules in 1789, the legislature was thus plainly understood from day one as the lawmaking system. That is including, in fact, you know, the, the governor. Um, this is precisely the view we endorse and the view repeatedly and consistently embraced by this court over the course of a century. It is, however, precisely contrary to petitioners' flat-footed, false textualist, faux textualist view that legislature in Article 1 refers to a fixed institution and not a lawmaking system. Now let me just summarize um, what we've done so far in the brief. In sum, nine early states... Georgia, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Delaware, Kentucky, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, and New York squarely rejected ISL. Now, hold on, before you go past that, so how, how is it that they squarely rejected it? They squarely um, rejected it by actually... Seven, seven of them because they had state constitutions either before, uh, under the Articles of Confederation, or under the new constitution that directly limited what legislatures can do. The Articles and the 
U.S. Constitution, both said the legislature can do X, but in seven of the states, the state constitution say, yeah, it says legislature, but the legislature has to do what we, the state constitution, tell it to do. That's it's, seven. Not only, it's not only that they had constitutions that said that, it's that they adopted constitutions that said yes. that during this period. So in other words, right. the, I, I, the, I, I, the language actually, is on the books that says the legislature shall do this. Okay. Yes, actually, you- and I, I should have said it's actually eight. It includes Massachusetts. Um, but Massachusetts, which is going to get double counted, and New York make nine. Massachusetts is also a state where the governor is involved in the veto process. And New York is another case where the governor is a state where the governor is involved in the veto process. And if the governor is involved in the veto process, that actually is inconsistent with the ISL idea, which is the legislature just floats outside the lawmaking system. It's just, you know, the, the legislators as an, um, um, rather than the lawmaking system. Right. But just my, my point that I, just to finish it, is that it's not that these constitutions already existed and then the, then these state constitutions, then the federal constitution comes along or the articles come along. Right. It's that in the presence of ISL-like language, you know, mm-hmm. or what the ISLs would be, have us believe is ISL language, um, the, all of these states adopted state constitutional provisions which would have been unconstitutional if ISL were valid. Correct. Correct. And now, and there was and no at no time did any court say you know did the Supreme Court or or any other body say this is unconstitutional. And at no point did legislature just try to go off the reservation and defy this, saying you know you can't do that to us. Mm-hmm. So we got nine states on one side. Now here's what we go on to say on the other side: no early state among the remaining six. This is the early periods. So I'm looking at the original 13 states plus Kentucky and Vermont. No early state among the remaining six, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New Jersey, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, embraced ISL. None of these six adopted a new constitution in the key time period, late 1777 through 1793. Nor did any of these six make executive or judicial officers part of the ordinary lawmaking process. In these six, the ISL issue never squarely arose. Right. So So they're basically not, you know, they didn't do anything... That's either a, way. Right, either yeah. way. So they don't provide any data to support right. the ISL. Right. They got nine out of nine and then nothing on the other side, just either way. Ultimately, petitioners offer almost nothing. They identify no evidence that any early state ever acted on the basis of ISL ideas. So I'm going to just skip just a little bit of this stuff because I think it just deepened the weeds. What we end up saying is the following. So petitioners, early American evidence, boils down to they 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 point to a cup. Uh, they say a couple of speeches. It actually turns out to be a couple of speeches by the same guys. <laughs> so petitioners, early American evidence boils down to this: in a country of millions, one or two persons articulated an ISL theory of Article One. In the end, petitioners point to no government action by any early state legislative or constitutional body that necessarily reflected ISL belief. They failed to deduce even a single example of a state legislative body that by declaring independence openly, that is independence from a state constitution, openly transgressed its state constitution. By contrast, Americans in every state where the ISL issue arose in the 1780s and early 1790s did not simply speak but acted directly contrary to ISL tenets. 
these official actions necessitate all these state constitutions and, and state decisions to, to involve the governors in New York and Massachusetts. These official actions involved hundreds of governmental decision makers who necessarily rejected ISL. If ISL with a background understanding of the words of Article 1 and in the nearly identical words of the precursor Articles Confederation, then there would have been massive recorded pushback in many places, but no dogs barked. I just, uh, you know, to clarify, I think, the first sentence there, you said Americans in every state where the ISL issue arose in the 1780s, the issue didn't actually arise. What happened, it's not like some people were saying, oh, you can't do this to the state constitution because of uh, because there's ISL. It didn't. It didn't arise. The point I think really you could say Americans in every state where you know the ISL claims would have been applicable. You know, or something. Now like you that. tell me this, Andy. Yeah, well, Andy I, where where, where were you, you know, on this one? You know, I understand, now you say but I wrote it wrong. I we wrote it wrong. But uh, <laughs> I don't think anybody reading this will get will get confused. But listening okay. to it, they might. Okay. So, okay. Now, okay. That, that, then, then I mollify it. <laughs> Andy, I'm joking, of course, with our audience because Andy went over 30 drafts of this thing over the course of the last three weeks. Okay. And this next paragraph very much bears Andy's imprint. And this is the final paragraph in this section on originalism. A quick originalist addendum. Petitioners invoke, that is the ISL crowd, Episodes many decades after ratification. They go into the eight, all the way, tell the story all the way up to the 1840s, 50s, because they think they've got some good evidence. I, I'm doubtful, but here's what I say. We say, this history must be discounted appropriately. We cite actually Justice Amy Coney Barrett in a recent case asking the following question. How long after ratification a subsequent practice illuminate original public meaning? You know, how deep into the 19th century do you go? Also, in any assessment of evidence after 1793, the closing date of our analysis here, the court should give great weight to many later state constitutions emulating the early state constitutional practice that we've highlighted today, and then we cite to another brief. But what we're saying here is we are only focusing on 1777, which is when the Articles of Confederation get published, to 1793, which is the closing date of our analysis, the, the early founding period. And the question that Andy asked, he says, well, why are you bringing the curtain down then? And we say, because we got to do it at some point. He says, okay, but, you know, why did you pick that date? Just because it made your data look good? And I say, no, it was, you know, five years into the project that um, the Constitution was launched in 1788, you know, give it five years or something. He said, well, you need to explain that to the court, why you're doing it the way you're doing it if you're presenting yourself as Serious scholars, and so here's what we say in a, in a note that it owes everything to Andy. This closing date, marking the that is 1793, the end of 1793, marking the fifth anniversary of the Constitution's launch in 1788-89, is not cherry picked for argumentative advantage. In fact, in 1796, Tennessee became the tenth state out of ten with an anti-ISL constitution, and the tenth that strongly foreshadowed the very language of the North Carolina Constitutional Clause at issue today, the clause petitioners mock as vague in their question presented. So we're basically looking at what governments are doing a little bit before the Constitution and the Articles of Confederation and shortly after the Constitution when they're trying to actually implement it 
as in the first set of elections, but also in the state constitutions they're adopting in the immediate aftermath of a federal constitution that says legislature, um, but that they understand to mean legislature as constrained by state constitutions, which can be modified at any time by us, the people of a state. I just wanted on the record that that I did contribute more than the couple of things we're talking about. In this oh, story. of course you did. I'm just going through them point by point by point. Okay, and and at the end we'll actually, Andy, if it makes you happy. No, no, no. I don't want to. I, okay. I, 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 I just. Uh, it's okay. not about me. Okay. Um, okay. So and it's not. It's actually uh, not about me or Vic or Steve. It's about helping the court get it right and showing the country that people of different ideological persuasions can actually cohere around principled legal approaches like originalism. That's what it is about. You're right, Andy. But let me now, just in the short time we have left, give you the last little segment of the, the first half of the brief. Here's the, the last section that we're going to talk about today. Question three. Don't ISL critics essentially ignore the word legislature in Article 1? And this is really the key question in some ways to, you know, to the flat-footed argument. You know, it's like, oh, it says legislature. It, it is. And that's why we, we want to get through this today, and then we'll, we'll talk about the rest next week. Au contraire, we better explain this word than do ISLers who rip it from its historical and structural context. The word legislature did not float freely independently in the 18th century era. Rather, the word was grounded in founding-era law and theory. A legislature was a creature of its master constitution. Consider the federal legislature. Nobody thinks that the simple word Congress in the Constitution enables the federal legislature to ignore its master, its master constitution or its companion federal Supreme Court, especially tasked with enforcing its master constitution. So to a state legislature is presumptively bound by its master state constitution and companion Supreme Court. The word Congress appears in the federal constitution over 60 times. Context makes clear that the word sometimes describes the House and Senate, but not the president, as when the Constitution discusses the sessions of Congress or the president's provision of information to Congress, State of the Union addresses. But more often, Congress means House and Senate acting with the president via lawmaking, whether or not the document specifies that the Congress must act by law. In many important contexts, the word Congress, even without the by law qualifier, has been properly understood thanks to history, structure, and context, to mean a lawmaking system rather than a particular institution. Ditto for the Constitution's various reference to a given state's legislature. In context, this word often means a state's lawmaking system, as indeed the court has made clear in a whole bunch of cases. Consider also the executive heads of departments. Here's the quote from the Constitution. Congress made by law. Thus, the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the present alone, in the course of law, are the heads of departments. Now, imagine that Congress passed a law vesting the appointment power for an assistant attorney general, and the attorney general, the head of the Justice Department, would sensible interpreters argue that the president lacked power to direct the AG concerning the appointment? No, even though the Constitution distinguishes here between the president and the heads of departments. Everyone would concede presidential power to cabinet, attorney general power here, AG power. No one would read heads of departments to mean 
independent heads of departments. IHD theory, independent heads of department theory, to coin a phrase, makes no sense because there exists a backdrop principle of unitary executive power over executive department heads. The president is his underling's master. Even though the Constitution doesn't say that. Well, Andy, it does. And just wait. Likewise, there exists a backdrop principle that state constitutions are masters of state legislatures. Both backdrop principles appear explicitly in the federal constitution. The emphatic Article II vesting clause repudiates IHD, independent heads of department theory, and the five-tier Article VI supremacy clause repudiates ISL. So we think, actually, elsewhere in the Constitution, it's pretty clear, president controls his branch, and state constitutions uh, are supreme over state statutes. But the stubborn question remains, why did the founders write the election clause as they did? reiterating the Articles of Confederation's specific reference to each state's, quote, legislature, unquote. More pointedly still, does our reading make this word meaningless? So here we come to the key textual nub of the issue. And we say, does our reading make the word meaningless? Not at all. Here's what the real backstory is. And it has nothing to do with the Pinckney Plan, you see. The framers focused most intently on the issues of the 1780s, not the 2020s. In 1787, the word legislature identified an extant, off-the-shelf lawmaking apparatus in every state. The word offered a comforting textual continuity of the articles, as lost by the three key mid-1780 state constitutions we've highlighted, and cohered with democratic principles, most important of all. The word cleanly jump-started the upcoming 1789 federal election in most jurisdictions. In 11 states, executives and judges were wholly outside the regular lawmaking apparatus. But various executives and judges nonetheless sometimes participated in elections and appointments for state officials. In these 11 states, Article 1 made clear that such executives and judges would not make the rules for the first federal elections. Had Article 1 said state instead of legislature, there might have been more ambiguity and possible infinite regress issues. Who within a state would decide who would decide in the first federal elections in various places? Legislature was a handy specification in 1789. But as previously noted, there was one final wrinkle to be ironed out in two key states. Did legislature mean an institution, like the Congress acting without the president, or a lawmaking system, like Congress acting with the president? In 11 states, the two interpretations converged in a result. The institution, known as the legislature, made the laws, and no one outside this institution participated in the lawmaking system. But in two states, Massachusetts and New York, executives and in New York, judges, too, were indeed part of the ordinary lawmaking system in 1787 via a, a veto. Were these actors, who were surely legislative in function, but arguably not legislature-ish in name, part of the, quote, legislature, unquote, within the original meaning of Article One? Here's the key fact. 
In both states, these actors were indeed part of the first federal elections. The founding generation understood legislature here to mean not an institution, but a lawmaking system. This is precisely the definition we endorse, and precisely the definition the court has used for more than a century. Petitioners themselves talk about Massachusetts, New York, but the actual practice in these two states, the only two states where the issue arose in 1789, utterly destroys petitioners' flat-footed definition of, quote, legislature as an institution and not a lawmaking system. And then we cite to a landmark 1932 Supreme Court case, unanimous, named Smiley, stressing this exact point about these exact two states in 1789. So the court long ago understood this was the key, that governors were part of the legislature for Article I purposes. Um, so let's just go over those two states again and why why this matters. So you have 11 states where basically the lawmaking system was the same as the legislature, exactly. you know, the institution of the legislature. So it really was not a test of ISL because there's nothing outside of that. And you say, oh, this is not part of the legislature, so therefore it should be excluded if ISL is a uh, definition of legislature. Is, uh, carries the day. So those 11 states don't, you know, they don't prove anything, they don't disprove anything. Right. But the other two states, Massachusetts and New York, there you've got, uh, you know, weird systems where you have, you know, the, you have a, a council or where you have, a, a, you know, with judges or you have the governor, something other than just the, the elected body of the legislature that is determining the rules for the federal elections. And that actual, if ISL were valid, then those two states would be acting, they, they, they would have to change their system to conform with this for the federal constitution, for the first federal elections. Which is why at the beginning, Andy, I asked this really simple question, does the governor count or not? Now you're saying that that's the, the very question that these two states had to ask themselves and answer in 1789. So let me just give the audience just the, the last little bit of this brief, which will answer your question, I think, very precisely. Under a proper originalist understanding of legislature, in quotes, each state's people acting through its state constitution retain broad power to redefine the legislative system for all subsequent elections. For example, by adding a gubernatorial veto to the ordinary 1780s legislative system or by adopting an alternative or supplemental legislative device, such as initiative or referendum. Note also that even as revolutionary Massachusetts gave its governor a personal veto pen, and thus made him and his and him alone, in effect, a third lawmaking branch, New York's governor shared veto power with judges. But judges are the very actors, petitioners, the ISLers, wrongly contend cannot generally be involved in federal election policymaking. Today, every state governor enjoys a one-person veto power, a la the revolution in Massachusetts. And Article I is understood in every state, and by this court, the Supreme Court, unanimously in this 1932 Smiley case, to include the governor as part of the legislature for congressional election purposes. Thus, in 12 of the original 13 states, the legislature today refers to a different institutional cluster than it did in the 1780s. Remember, only Massachusetts gave the governor a personal veto pen. Then, today, everyone does. 
This result has come about because Article 1, from day one, has respected the broad power of state constitutions to redefine from time to time the contours of their respective legislatures. The word legislature must be and is in fact understood everywhere, uh, uncontroversially, as kind of dynamic rather than static. At any given moment, and here we end, we're going to tell the court, again, here's the definition. We're going to have to tell you what legislature really means. At any given moment, and Andy, you rewrote this sentence, and thank you for that. At any given moment, the, quote, legislature of a state for Article One purposes is thus whatever the state people, via their state constitution and consistent with the Republican government principles, say the legislature, or more precisely, the state's lawmaking system is. That's originalism, and here's now what's finally amazing. The court has said just that, and recently in a landmark case, and actually several recent landmark cases, and those cases in turn built squarely on early landmark cases. So it turns out that originalism here perfectly squares with what the court has said for an entire century. So originalism here coheres with precedent. So these precedents are not egregiously erroneous. They're absolutely right. And unlike in, for example, the Dobbs situation, Andy, where the uh, originalists on the court said the precedents look one way and originalism looks the other way, here originalism and the cases completely cohere. And so originalism here is going to be supporting the cases and vice versa. And I I think that you conclude this section with uh, two sentences that I think emphasize, give the precedents even more weight. Because you say that each of these early landmark rulings was unanimous. And, and, and. And each opinion issued from this court, meaning the Supreme Court's chief justice. So especially, we'll talk about this next week, if I especially want to get the attention of the current Chief Justice, John Roberts, I'm reminding him, because he wants to, he's an institutional person, I'm reminding him of what the court has done in the past in these landmark opinions authored by his predecessors. I've quoted basically three people thus far from the court. John Marshall was Chief Justice and two other Chief Justices, a man named White and a person named Hughes. Now, of course, we've still got seven more questions, but uh, this is a good breaking point here. Yeah, because um, the other questions are much shorter. Right. But um, but also, you know, I, I think that you're starting to see the, the argument cohere a little bit because we're starting to bring in some precedents. And so we've got, you know, the originalism. We've got some textualism. We've got history. We've got structure. And we've got precedents. So there's a lot going on our side. And on the other side, we have error. <laughs> the Pinckney plan. The Pinckney plan. And anyone can make a mistake. And I'm sure they will disavow their mistaken reliance in the next round of um, filings mm-hmm. um, and in their oral argument. Yes. And that's why it's not a gotcha. It's not about a gotcha. It's not. It's, you know. But it is saying, listen, originalism is serious business. I've done this for 30 years. Steve Calabresi has done this for 30 years. Vikram Amar has done this for 30 years. And we are claiming a certain expertise here. And if you're going to be serious originalist, you should listen 
to the serious historians. Okay, so there's more next week, and I, I think that for for our uh, our audience, it's instructive to see how a brief, you know, comes together. Um, yes, we'll spend more time next week giving them the backstory of how this came together, and and that's actually, frankly, going to be the story of Andy Lipka. No, 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 no. And Chris Duggan and my amazing TA team. Yes. Well, okay. Until then, thank you. Thank you.